Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we just think about the words of that last song, Lord, and can it be that I should gain? Lord, we just thank you for your miraculous work in our life to save us, to save us from the sins that we deserve to die for. Lord, but through your work in Christ on the cross, our chains fell off, our heart is free through faith in Jesus' finished work on the cross. And we just thank you for that today. I just pray that you'd orient our hearts around that cross today and be with us today and as we go from here. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So right now, at this very moment, excuse me, in Washington, D.C., there's a soldier standing guard at the tomb of the unknown soldier. There's a group of soldiers known as the Old Guard who have been standing watch in front of the tomb 24 hours a day, seven days a week since 1937 in all kinds of weather conditions. The white marble tomb is impressive, but by itself the tomb is not much different from what is found in many cemeteries. What makes that tomb special is the soldiers of the Old Guard, sentinels as they're called, and the way that they perform their duties. The Arlington National Cemetery website says this, Soldiers who volunteer to become tomb guards must undergo a strict selection process and intensive training. Each element of the tomb guard's routine has meaning. The guard marches 21 steps down the black mat behind the tomb, turns and faces east for 21 seconds, turns and faces north for 21 seconds, and then takes 21 steps down the mat. Next, the guard executes a sharp shoulder arms movement to place his or her weapon on the shoulder closest to the visitors, signifying that he or she stands between the tomb and any possible threat. The Tomb of the Unknown Soldier stands as a monument to honor those who gave their lives in service to our country. This morning, we assemble here to honor Jesus, who gave his life to save us from the penalty that we deserve because of our sins. Those soldiers died to purchase our freedom while we live in this country. Jesus died to give us freedom from our sins in this life and throughout all eternity. Last week, we heard Charlie remind us about Satan and his schemes. We saw particularly how Satan seeks to twist and reverse God's design in the world and how he seeks to upend and reverse God's good order. We saw how Satan appealed to physical desires and how he promises to bring us happiness if we question God's good order and look to find happiness in anything other than God. I want to make the case today that one major aspect of the antidote to Satan's poison lies can be found in our humility and submitting to God's right order. Just a minute ago, you heard Dan read one of the sermon texts as commonly used to illustrate how to fight sin and the devil, and that's Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Before we go back there, let's step back and take a big picture look at the book of Ephesians. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul lays out the gospel of Jesus and the grace and salvation that we have in Jesus. 
chapter 1, verse 10 says that God has a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. God's good order includes reconciling sinners to God in the first part of chapter 2. And in the second part of chapter 2, God's good order includes Gentiles being reconciled to God. In Genesis, the serpent and sin broke God's good order, as we heard last week. In Ephesians 1 through 3, God restores that good order through Christ. Chapter 4 through the start of chapter 6 shows how God's good order plays out in the lives of Christians, in our new lives in Christ. There's a heavy focus on unity in this section and an emphasis on putting off the old body in favor of the new through the work of the Holy Spirit. This section culminates with the illustration of God's good order in three different situations, from husbands and wives to children and parents to bondservants and masters. In all of these pairs, there's a two-way relationship of caring and submission with love and respect going both directions. So let's read our passage, beginning at Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. My aim today is to think about the armor of God as a whole, rather than to dissect the individual parts. I want to focus on the perspective of what it looks like to wear the armor of God rather than on the composition of the armor itself. Let's start at chapter 6, verse 10. Look at that very first word, finally. Finally indicates that this is the rounding off of the message of the entire letter of Ephesians. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. This is the main point of the passage. Any strength that we have comes only from God. Verse 11 says to put on the whole armor of God so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. Notice, it doesn't say to defeat the devil. We are to stand against his schemes. Verse 13 is parallel with this as it repeats to take up the whole armor of God that we may be able to withstand in the evil day. And to stand firm. The whole armor of God allows us to stand firm in the face of the devil's schemes. But what is the fight that we are faced with? 
Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. The real fight of the Christian is not against the things that are before us. Yes, each Christian has a real job to do in each of our daily lives, but the real battle we fight is spiritual. Listen again to how Charlie ended the service last week with Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The sentinel at the tomb of the unknown soldier knows his or her identity as a member of the old guard and faithfully carries out their duties. By being faithful in their post with careful precision, the sentinel brings honor. Honor to those who have fallen in battle, honor to their fellow sentinels, and honor to the country of the United States of America. The sentinel's identity as a member of the old guard compels them to precision and faithfulness through all conditions. The Christian identity is in the finished work of Christ on the cross and in the seal and ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. The armor of God is about living within our new identity in Christ under God's good order. The armor of God is doing this by wearing the strength of God and by submitting to his power. Being strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might has many facets. And there are many things that can be said to expand on what this looks like looks like in the life of a Christian. As I began studying for this message, one particular theme continued to jump out at me. And that's humility. Turn to 1 Peter 5, please. Beginning at verse 5, to, to look at a parallel text that shows this. This text highlights the connection between humility and resisting some Satan temptation and sin. 1 Peter 5, 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
Being strong is not in the strength of our own might. Standing against the schemes of the devil happens because of God's work. Our calling is to humble ourselves and to look to the strength of his might. Yes, we do become strong, but it, but it is because of God's power within us. Jonathan Edwards says of humility, Nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's reach as humility. Again, nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's reach as humility. So what exactly does humility look like in the daily life of a Christian? Christian humility is much more than saying, Ah, shucks, when somebody pays you a compliment. Humility in Christians is killing our pride by submitting to God and to his word and by being diligent in that obedience. Here, too, I found it so interesting how the sentinels reflect biblical principles of the Christian life in humility. Again, the Arlington National Cemetery website, it also says, When not walking, the tomb guards spend their duty time in quarters below the memorial display room of the Memorial Amphitheater, where they study cemetery history, clean their weapons, and help the rest of their relief prepare for the changing of the guard. Altogether, I see three elements of the sentinels reflected in the life of humility in the Christian faith. They study, they serve, and they support. If the sentinels can give honor to their country through their diligent service, how much more can the Christian grow in their faith and give honor to God by standing firm in his strength? They study, they serve, they support. The first one is study. I'll spend only a moment here because I believe that Sojourners is strong in understanding the importance of studying God's Word. We understand that study is an ongoing effort to continually mine the depths of God's Word. Study of God's Word is assumed in everything that I will say today. The second one is serving in humility. True serving can only come via humility, and humility comes through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The sentinels serve by submitting themselves to the military authorities. They stand firm and submit themselves to the training and strict discipline that is required. The sentinels do all of this to honor fallen soldiers and to honor their country. Remember in the worst winter storm, or even when hurricanes get that far north up to, to Washington, there's a sentinel posted at the tomb. There are no excuses for their service. If the sentinels can do all of this for a country that will pass away someday, how much more should we strive to honor and serve the eternal Almighty God? The difficulty, of course, in striving for humility is our pride. Jonathan Edwards also said of pride, Remember that pride is the worst viper that is in the heart, the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and sweet communion with Christ. It was the first sin that ever was and lies lowest in the foundation of Satan's whole building. And it is the most difficultly rooted out. And it is the most hidden, secret, and deceitful of all lusts. And often creeps in insensibly into the midst of religion and sometimes under the disguise of humility. Killing our pride and striving for humility is hard work. We shouldn't be surprised at this, though. Think of the skills and talents that you have in your life. If you're a musician, an artist, a gardener, a woodworker, whatever it is, 
You didn't just wake up one day and go out and hit a grand slam on day one. No, you practiced day by day and gradually got better. The Christian life is the same way and it takes work. The additional problem is that Satan and our own sin are trying to derail us at every turn. We can tell ourselves lies that take us off the path of growth and in obedience. And these lies that we can tell ourselves can cause us to do some silly gymnastics to avoid the truth. I'll tell you a quick story of when I was a teenager. Before I came to Christ, I had long hair. That caused a little bit of friction with my parents. So, I went to the Bible one day to see if I could find something that would justify myself there. So I went to the concordance, and I looked up some stuff, and I found, I found 1 Corinthians 11.14. Maybe I'll find something here. So I read it. It says, Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? Just pretend we didn't see that. I tell you that story of that silly kid to tell you this next story from not too long ago. Our pride is the most difficultly rooted out, and it's a very deceitful lust. One day, not all that long ago, I was driving down the interstate and looked at my speedometer. 74 miles an hour. I asked myself, Why am I driving 74 in what I clearly know is a 70 mile an hour speed limit? In my conversation with myself that day, I said, I know this, it's highly, highly unlikely that I'll get a ticket for 74. Even if I do get a ticket, little speeding's okay. It's socially acceptable. I mean, everybody's doing it, right? So I'm not going to get fired from my job. My mugshot's not going to be on the front page of the paper if I get busted for 74. But what I realized in that moment was that speeding ultimately wasn't my problem. Pride was my issue. I was justifying my actions in various ways and putting myself above God. I was pretending that I didn't see that 70 mile an hour speed limit. In that situation that day, I... I decided that it didn't apply to me. And that just a little would be all right. Just like the serpent in the garden asked, did God really say? Or that silly kid who pretended he didn't see the words about long hair. I was saying, did God really say, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, including speed limits? Rather than being subject for the Lord's sake, I was disobeying it for my sake. Even worse, I was using my freedom in Christ as a cover-up for evil. My purpose of telling you that story today is not to fix your driving habits. I still have work to do there myself, by the way. My purpose is to illustrate how pride can show up in our lives, and also that there's joy to be found in submission. I want to just make a brief side comment here about this. The the sin of speeding, it's socially acceptable. Nobody gasped when I say I was doing 74. It's socially acceptable so much so that I actually debated with myself when I was preparing this whether or not to share this story with you 
at the risk of sounding too self-righteous. Isn't that crazy? It can be easy for us to think that we're disconnected from the evils of our culture. But in our American ethos, individual defiance is so ingrained that the worst, the worst viper in our hearts can even appear to be virtuous at times. My thought process on worrying about self-righteousness in telling this story is evidence of the, cultural, the culture's hold on me. Here's my challenge. Think hard about how the culture affects you. Because I believe it does, even when we pretend not to see it. But be encouraged, be encouraged that humble obedience to Christ is the antidote. In that moment of my wrestling with speeding, and in other ways, both before and since then, I find joy in God's work in my life. I find joy because I'm redeemed, I'm redeemed by the blood of Christ. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I find joy in being subject for the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake to the speed limits. I find joy because God allowed me to see the tangible effects of the Holy Spirit working in my life. My submission to the speed limit that day was evidence of the seal of the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of my inheritance until I acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Before this happened, submitting to my defiance and driving 74, as, as just one example of that, was submitting to the same lies the serpent used in the garden. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, submitting to God's way is ultimately saying no to the lies. Standing firm in the Lord and in the strength of His might can show up on the interstate while sitting alone in my car. Now, I recognize that my tendency in my natural state is towards defiance. I also recognize that there's others on the other end of the spectrum. There are people who are diligent rule keepers. And there certainly are probably many people in in the middle. To the rule keepers, I admit that I can't share in understanding how that feels. However, I also want to encourage you to find joy in submission. Both the rule keeper and the rebel should find joy in submitting to God's grace. Remember from Charlie's message last week that Satan is an accuser, and he accuses believers. He accuses them in their failures and uses those lies to make Christians stumble. It seems to me that the pride in rule keepers can be found in the impulse to serve in their own strength. Therefore, find joy in your diligent service to God. Find joy in that. And also find joy and rest in knowing that grace will cover where your diligence fails. Jesus has paid it all. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit, and your eternity does not hinge on your performance. God will use your failures to help you rely on Him. And this leads me to the third reflection from the Sentinels that we can see in their service on our Christian walk. The first was study, the second was serving in humility, and the third is support. We're to support each other. Support takes on many forms. Support means encouraging each other with the words of the Lord when we're going through tough times. And often, of course, that also includes bringing others some tater tot hot dish. That's important. Uh, Support also means challenging each other in the true words of the Lord to flee sin, Satan's lies. Satan's lies and our sin is strong. So listen to the words of Hebrews 3.13. 
but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So study the word, serve in humility, support one another. At the tomb of the unknown soldier, there's a paradox when it comes to the sentinels. I said at the start that the sentinels are what makes this tomb special. At the same time, unless you have a personal relationship with one of the soldiers, you're not there to see any particular soldier. At the tomb, the sentinels are nameless, largely, other than the one who announces it. The other soldiers are nameless, and they get no glory in that moment. Their service sends all the glory to the tomb of the unknown soldier and by direct extension to all who have given their lives in service to our country. Simply put, at the tomb, it's not about the soldier. And yet, it is all about the soldier. The soldier doesn't get any glory while they're performing their duties. That would be to bring dishonor upon the tomb. However, the soldier does get glory outside of their service. There's a tomb guard badge that they wear. And outside of the military, I'm sure few would recognize that badge. But I'm sure that inside the army, their fellow soldiers see that and have the due respect for the wearer of that badge. But even if no one recognizes them, they have the internal honor of having served faithfully in their post. In our American culture, it's all about grab it all and grab it now. And why shouldn't we? Why should, why should we be surprised by that? In the garden, the temptation was that Adam and Eve didn't quite have it all. Christian, don't think that this temptation is outside of us or only exists in other people. My driving 74, a little thing, but it was all about grabbing all I could take without getting in trouble, of course, and grabbing it all in the moment. Be warned, as we've been hearing from Tyler over these past many weeks, even if we do get all of these things, they're all vanity and striving after wind. So yes, enjoy your cheeseburger, but know that it won't ever fill you up. A couple of years ago, I was at the Minnesota State Fair at the WCCO booth. At the time, Alan Page was at the booth. If you're not familiar with the name, Alan Page was a member of the Minnesota Vikings in the late 60s and 70s. He is considered one of the greatest defensive linemen ever, and he's a pro football Hall of Famer. After his career in football, he pursued the law profession and became the first African-American elected to the Minnesota Supreme Court. There he served as an associate justice for 22 years. In addition to all that, Page has maintained a reputation throughout his life as a humble, respected man. Here's what struck me that day. I watched Page as he met with the radio people and did his interview, and then as he shook hands and cheerfully greeted fans in the booth. And then he walked away into the crowd. I watched him for a long time, walking down that sloping street for as long as I could. The whole time, I couldn't help but thinking how fleeting glory is in this life. I would say that within ten steps, literally ten steps outside of that WCCO booth area, he became just another gentleman in his 70s. In the roughly two blocks that I could watch him walk, I watched him for a long time. No one, not a single person, recognized him or paid any attention to this accomplished man. On this earth, 
Glory and possessions are fleeting and temporary. The few minutes that I may have saved by going 74, I've since been all wasted on something else. Whether or not anyone recognizes a former Sentinel or a former Supreme Court Justice, they still carry the honor of that service throughout their life. As a Christian, we can carry the honor of our service not only in this life, but in the life to come. Furthermore, we don't need to accomplish great things to be worthy of honor. We don't need to be selected out of hundreds of soldiers. And we don't need to get into the Hall of Fame. All we do need is to be faithful in the smallest of things. Remember from the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Even the servant who had the least, the the two talents, the master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Our faithfulness in the smallest of things will lead to our entrance into the joy of our master. Remember that the battles that we face in our Christian lives are more than what we see on the surface. And remember that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So before I close today, I want to share a few examples from the Bible to encourage us towards humble faithfulness in the smallest of things, because God is over all things. Please turn to Second Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings 6. Here Elisha the prophet has been advising the king of Israel who was at war against the king of Syria. Now the king of Syria was upset because his plans were continually thwarted by God's advice through Elisha who passed them on to the king of Israel. So the king of Syria sought to capture Elisha. So let's read in 2 Kings 6 beginning at verse 14. So, the king of Syria sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Elisha said, Do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Ultimately, in this story... The chariots of fire did not fight the battle on earth, nor was any battle fought at all. Elisha prayed to the Lord, and the Lord struck the Syrians with blindness and led them into Samaria. The king of Israel could have struck them down, but he asked the Lord first, and the Lord said no. Ultimately, the king of Israel ended up preparing a feast for the Syrian army. Go to verse 23 where it says, So he prepared them, he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, 
he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. God was in control the entire time. The king and the Israelite army submitted to God, and God won the battle with no fighting at all. On Easter Sunday this year, Pastor Tyler preached on Psalm 57. And he connected the parallels between David and Jesus. Remember that the background of Psalm 57 was when Saul and his army were trying to find and kill David. David had fled into a cave and was hiding there. In David's heart, he was taking refuge in the Lord. He was putting all of his trust in God and trusting that God will fulfill his promise, even under a situation that did not seem to be going David's way and looked quite grim at many times. As David faced death, he stood firm in the strength of the Lord's might. He said he was surrounded by lions in that psalm, but God's providence was what protected David. Remember that David was hiding in the cave when Saul came in. At that moment, David had the opportunity in his own power to have taken Saul's life. However, David chose to let God fight the battle for him. David chose to do it God's way. David trusted God and allowed God to deal with Saul. David submitted himself to the mighty hand of God. And by doing this, God was glorified and David was blessed for his faithfulness. And in my final example is from Acts 7, where Stephen was in front of the Jewish authorities and the high priest. At the end of Stephen's speech, he calls the Jews a stiff-necked people who always resist the Holy Spirit. Acts 7, verse 54, says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Right now, at this very moment, in heaven, there is our Savior, Jesus, at the right hand of God, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Sojourners, stand firm in your faith, wearing the full armor of God. If God is for us, who can be against us? So study the word that you may know our God of justice and grace and power. Serve in humility. Work hard every day in the smallest of things to submit yourself to obedience to God. Work hard every day to feel the grace that he has given us in Jesus Christ. Work because we are saved and no longer need to work. Work to bring honor to God and he will honor you in it. And support, encourage one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Remember again what is said in First Peter, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, 
knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen, sojourners. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray for us at Sojourners today, as we go out from here, that you would enlighten our hearts so that we may increasingly know what is the hope of your calling, what is the wealth of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe, according to the mighty working of your strength. In Jesus' name I pray, Lord. Amen.